0: Good morning and if you would go ahead and meet me in Psalm chapter or Psalm 139 Psalm 139 As you do let me welcome those of you who may be visiting with us this morning uh, My name is Kyle Valer, and I serve as one of the pastors on staff here And very thankful to be opening God's word with you this morning Uh, We are jumping back into our series after a week off uh, for Mother's Day, uh, and we're jumping into uh, this series that we've called, Let's Talk About It, in which we are looking at how the Bible addresses some of the more pressing issues of our time. And today's topic of abortion has long been one of those topics, but even more so after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer, for which we celebrate. Presently, some states uh, are acting to ban all, uh, all abortion, uh, abortion altogether, while others are seeking to become hotspot destinations for abortions. Other states are somewhere in between those two ends. But no matter where she finds herself, the church must be ready to stand for truth and love when it comes to this issue. Consider this, the Guttmacher Institute, which is a pro-abortion policy center, it estimates that by the age of 45, 24% of women will have had at least one abortion, practically one in four. And there's every reason to believe that that number will only increase as abortion-inducing medications are shipped directly to people's homes. Like with the issue of pornography, modern technology and access is only making the struggle against this darkness that much more difficult and that much more pressing. Which is why we once again come back to this issue as an issue of the heart. Abortion is a political and public policy issue for sure, but it's not only those things. We know from the scriptures that the intentions and the motives and the fears and the desires and the beliefs of the human heart are the most crucial matters when it comes to any issue. With all that we know about the unborn, the support for abortion remains high in our country, which points to this issue being a heart issue. This is why we, the church, must continue to be clear and engaged in these conversations. It's been a few years since we as a faith family have uh, addressed this topic together. And so I'm glad that we're doing this for, for three particular reasons this morning. First, God's Word speaks to it. And we should never be ashamed or hesitant to apply what the Scriptures say to the things that we're facing. Second, each of us needs to be reminded of what God says so that we'll, we'll be able to be effective witnesses for those things. And then third, there are women and families this morning, maybe here or online, who need to be reminded that their choices matter and that God's grace and strength are enough even when they need to make the right choice or when they've already made a wrong choice. To you who perhaps have dreaded this morning's topic because of the shame or the hurt or the guilt of past decisions, let me say this. Your God knows you and He loves you. And from one of your pastors, hear me say that you have been on my heart as I have prepared this week. I'm grateful that you're here. And I pray that through this morning, in the hard moments of this sermon, God would give you grace. And at the end of this sermon, you would know that the love and joy and freedom of Christ belong to you in Him. The Bible is clear and direct in its condemnation of abortion. But it is also clear and direct about God's provision for sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. At the cross we see not only the Lord's hatred for the sin of abortion, but also His gracious gift of redemption for those who have had abortions. And so our goal this morning is just what it is every Sunday morning, to make much of Jesus and to see what the Lord says about this pressing topic. So with that in mind, let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. This is Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. David writes For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me. When as yet there were none of them. How vast and precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I, could, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, because we need your word. In the midst of a culture that is so confused about so many issues, we cannot rely on ourselves. We must rely on you, and we must look to you for truth. So help us. You know each and every person who is hearing this prayer right now. You know what's going on in their heart and then what's going on in their mind. Pray that you would minister to them. Help them to hear from you, O oh Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For good reason, Psalm 139 is one of the most well known and well loved parts of Scripture. In it, David speaks to the personal devotion God has toward him, that David can't flee from God's presence, and that God knows everything about him, and that from beginning to end, the Lord is sovereign over every aspect of his life. David is in awe of the absolute personal devotion and interest that God shows to him. And as our passage this morning shows, it's an interest that extends to the time before David was even born. The same is true for you. The same is true for every single person. Before any human being ever saw you, the Lord had his eye on you. Which is the first truth that we must keep in mind this morning. A child, indeed every child, is a purposeful work of the Creator. Just listen in verses 13 and 15 to the type of language that David employs to describe God creating him. He says his inward parts were formed. He was knitted together, intricately woven These speak to pregnancy not being this random or just some natural, undirected process. It's God actively and deliberately orchestrating and empowering the creation of a new human being. With all the complexity and mystery that remains about the formation of new life, there is one who is fully aware of each part of the journey. From the very beginning of our lives, the darkness has never been able to hide us from our Creator. There is no such thing as an unwanted pregnancy from God's perspective. There is no such thing as an accidental person. You may not have been expected by your parents, but you were intended by your God. Your child may have come out of the blue, but he didn't come out of nowhere. God is intimately involved in the creation and development of every human life, including yours. And here again, we see the significance of having a creator when it comes to these matters of human life and purpose that we've been talking about. Just as with the the previous issues that we've talked about in this series, like sexuality and transgenderism, God being our creator means something for these conversations. If God is the one who grants life and forms and shapes us in our mother's womb, then His work is to be treasured and protected. A man and a woman are certainly involved in the conception of a child, but they are not the source of that child's life. God is, and because he is, it's his choice, not the man's choice, not the woman's choice that must be honored and prioritized, and should he grant that a baby be formed, then it's our role to nurture and to guard and to value that child from the very beginning of his or her life. So from this perspective, it's plain to see that abortion is a complete rejection of the Creator's place and authority in our lives. At its fundamental level, abortion is one more expression of the belief that we belong to ourselves and no one else. It's the same exact philosophy that lies underneath the sexual and gender revolution that we're seeing all around us today. It's just expressed a little bit differently. Abortion asserts that we are the ones who define human worth and dignity, and like other false views of life, it predictably leaves the weakest paying the price. This is why abortion not only destroys defenseless unborn children in general, it also victimizes women, minorities, those with disabilities, and those with financial hardships. When you strip human beings of the dignity of being known as the image-bearers of God, then anything goes, and it is the needy and the weak who are the first to go. But the Bible values human life, even human life in the womb, because it recognizes that each human being is not just some random product of blind evolutionary chance but rather every human life is the expression of God's creativity and purpose. Because of this, a child, indeed every child, is also the praiseworthy work of the Creator. Right now, the general consensus of our culture, at least as it expresses it, is that children are more of a burden than a blessing. People are waiting longer to have them, people are having fewer of them and some are simply saying they'd rather live their life without them having children today is generally in many parts of our culture seen as the quickest way to drain fun freedom and finances out of our life but from God's perspective his word makes clear that children are the exact opposite of that gloomy picture children were part of the plan that was very good before sin entered the world. Part of the blessing God gave to Adam and Eve was His enabling grace for them to have and to raise children. Children are a gift. And if you've ever had the opportunity, the wonderful experience to hold a newborn child, you know that this, there just isn't anything more precious and praiseworthy in all of creation. David writes in, in verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Like when we consider the extraordinary complexities of the human person and how God weaves us together in such a small and hidden place, how can we not echo David's sentiment? A mother's womb is one of the greatest theaters for God's glory found in the entire universe. And through pregnancy, new life beckons that you and I would look upward and give God the praise that He is due for such an extraordinary work of creative power and care. But tragically, the mindset of abortion so degrades pregnancy that for many today, expecting a child is seen as, at best, an inconvenience to be easily dismissed or at worst, a life-destroying danger that has to be avoided. Abortion is portrayed today as a life-saving procedure that will allow a woman to live her life to the fullest without having to bear the the terrible burden of, of bringing a child into this world. For a large number of people, the unborn child is not an expression of God's glory, but an object of suffering that should be eliminated. In promoting self as the priority, abortion supporters have maligned what God's Word says is truly a miraculous blessing. But not only is pregnancy itself disparaged in abortion, the unborn child is as well. Today it's argued in various ways that While the unborn are human, they aren't fully persons because they lack various capacities like intellect or feelings or self-awareness or the ability to interact with their surroundings. It's only after they reach a certain level of ability or viability that they are more fully deserving of rights and protection. In this way, the unborn are considered less than. and are are not afforded the same level of regard as those already born. But even here, the Bible presses back against this by treating the unborn as no less than a human person. In verse 13, when David writes, you formed my inward parts, the word there is literally kidneys, which commonly refers to the Old Testament in the Old Testament, as the, uh, to the internal being of a person, their soul. The kidneys were that, in, in much the same way that the heart represents the inner person, the kidneys also functioned that way in the Old Testament. So what David is saying there is, you formed my inward soul, my soul, the inner person here. God relates to that unborn child in a very personal way. So, so even as we only see um, the physical form of a baby, or we maybe even just see a mass of cells at the very beginning of a pregnancy, the moment that, that is happening in that pregnancy is not just the creation of a physical being, but also a spiritual being. And God relates to that unborn child in personal ways. In the Old Testament, God speaks of knowing and consecrating and appointing Jeremiah before the prophet was ever born. In the New Testament, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And while he was yet unborn, he leapt at the sound of Mary's voice. Psalm 51 goes so far as to say that from our earliest moments, we are moral beings before God. David says he was conceived in sin, meaning that from the very time of his conception, his heart, his inner man was bent away from God and toward sin. Then just think of the Son of God coming in the form of a baby. By being conceived in Mary's womb, Jesus gave dignity to every stage of every developing child. He didn't become Lord when he reached some moment of viability or ability, or when he became more self-aware. He remained the Lord through the entire pregnancy into his birth. You see, far from minimizing what is happening during pregnancy, the Bible elevates everything about it. And this is why David speaks of God being worthy of praise, because as he considers how the Lord has powerfully worked to create and sustain him from his earliest moments, David can only be filled with awe and wonder. It was the prince prince of of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who said, said it this way, we too seldom remember our creation and all the skill and kindness bestowed upon our frame. We need not go to the ends of the earth for marvels, nor even across our own threshold. They abound in our own bodies. Believers, we must hold firm to the full personhood of the unborn. Of course, a baby in the womb doesn't have the same level of intellect or self-awareness that adult human beings have. But are we really wanting to say that a man or a woman's personhood rises or falls based on their intellect and self-awareness? Are we really wanting to go down the road of believing that a man or a woman is only fully a person when they need no assistance to keep living or when they're able to, or, or, or when they're able to fully interact with those around them? Because that has implications not only for the unborn, but also for the already born as well. We don't want to live in that world. History is filled with cultures that tried to define personhood by physical characteristics or mental capacities. And in every one of them, tragedy struck for those who didn't measure up. Nazi Germany was guilty not only of trying to eliminate Jews but also other groups of people that they considered life unworthy of life, including the physically and mentally disabled. China long ago, and well, not long ago, but long drove the abortion of millions of baby girls through its infamous one-child policy. And presently here in the U.S., There are staggering numbers of children being aborted because prenatal testing and scans have revealed either actual disabilities or the increased risk for disabilities. Brothers and sisters, we cannot join human value to human capacity. In God's eyes, human beings are not more or less valuable based on what they can do and how they stack up against various arbitrary measures. Listen, your dignity as a human being isn't tied to your ability. Your dignity as a human being is not tied to your potential, to your capacity. It's tied to the fact that you are created in the image of God. And the same is true for every human being, including the unborn. If we forget that, we not only place various groups in great danger, but we also rob God of the praise that He is due for the work that He has done. Every child, even before he is born, is an act of God's fearfully wondrous grace. And we must not fail to acknowledge and stand up for that reality. So every child is a purposeful work of God and is a praiseworthy work of God. Every one of them is also a providential work of God. Verses 16 through 18 say, your, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I am awake and I am still with you. One of the consistent truths of Scripture is that God has a definite plan "...for each and every human life." Isaac is the child of promise given to Abraham. Jacob is chosen over Esau. Joseph is sold into slavery for the purpose of saving God's people. Moses is called to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Esther is raised up to save the Jews... Jeremiah is set out and set apart before he is born to be a prophet. John the Baptist is born that he might prepare the way for Jesus. Mary is chosen to be the mother of Christ. The disciples are called out to follow him. And Paul is set apart to establish much of the early church. These are just a few of the billions of lives that have ever existed and carried out the plans and purposes of our sovereign God. You too, you personally are also intended for a very specific purpose. The Lord has a true and definite plan for you. Now, before you go too far into this mystery, realize that for most of us, we're not given all the details. And we can't see the end from the beginning. God doesn't expect us to. And we've talked about that before in passages about God's will for our lives. As David says, God's thoughts about him are more than the sand. In other words, they're beyond what we're able to comprehend. But the fact that we can't see the fullness of God's plan for our lives does not mean that that plan doesn't exist. Yes, there are times when God has broken into human experience and told men and women, this is exactly what I'm doing with your life. There are those times in history. But for most of us, for most of us, we're left to walk by faith and to carry out what God has shown us in the scriptures. And that's enough. That's what he wants us to do. Yet for the script- yet the scriptures tell us that God has a certain design for each of us. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship, created out in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And as we follow his word and we walk in his ways, we inevitably carry out those good works and we fulfill the plan that he has for our lives. But in terms of abortion, as with any killing of innocent life, it is an assault against the plans of God. It is an intentional attack against the Lord's will for another person's life. And it follows in the footsteps of men like Pharaoh and Herod who tried to destroy children in order to thwart the plan of God. Every unborn child not only possesses dignity, but also a divine design, an aim that God intends for that human life. Which means it's incredibly sad. To think of how many lives have never gotten to fully express the glory of God because of our culture's captivity to abortion. So this is yet another reason why abortion and the Christian view of life are not compatible. We long to see the plan of God fulfilled. To see things on earth as they are in heaven. And we know that God brings about that through people. And so we're not only standing up for the dignity of the unborn, but also for their place in the plans and purposes of God. Because according to the Scriptures, every unborn child is the purposeful, praiseworthy, and providential creation of our God. And we must be for them. Now. Even if you believe these general truths about human dignity, and I I hope that you do, that still leaves the difficulty of addressing some of the specific things that we hear in support of abortion. So what I want to do is address head-on four of the more pressing issues and objections that are commonly heard in our world today. First, what about situations involving rape and incest? Is abortion permissible in those situations? And as I begin to answer this, let me say that I am aware there are almost certainly women listening in this moment who have experienced the horror of rape and maybe even in the form of incestual sexual abuse. I cannot begin to understand the terror that you have been through, nor do I in any way want to minimize it. What was done to you was a violation of your human dignity, and God will not leave it unpunished. You are precious in God's sight and completely innocent of all fault in that matter. And we stand by you, and we stand for you. At the same time, I believe the church must respond to a society that believes aborting a child conceived through the trauma of rape and incest will help the victim to move on with, his, with her life. Because if what the Bible says about the unborn is true and what it says about the sinfulness of rape and incest is true, then I want to submit to you this morning that calling for the abortion of a child not only discounts the life of the unborn, but it also diminishes the lasting impact and trauma of rape and incest. Putting away the life of a child will not make the memories go away. Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death Because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. No unborn child should be thought to have less value because of how he or she was conceived. They are no less image bearers of God than any other child. In the case of rape or incest, the rapist should and, according to God, will be brought to justice. But the child conceived is guilty of no sin and therefore should not be touched. And even as I say that, I cannot imagine how difficult that would be for the victim and yet abortion. And I say this with all the sympathy that I have within me. Abortion would only add to the list of victims. And it will only victimize the woman again because it will be leading her to believe that an act of sin on her part will help to alleviate the pain from an act of sin on another's part. And it just isn't so. No one questions the horrendous nature of these kinds of circumstances, especially when they involve children who should never even have to think about these things. And no one should think that this means that we abandon women to deal with these things alone. In fact, if, if we, this is, a, this is a call to us, if we as a church are going to call for women to refuse abortion, then we must, we absolutely must be there for them in terms of emotional, spiritual, and financial support. But that unborn child is still precious in God's eyes, and we must stand for their life in prayerful hope that through a mother's faithful, enduring obedience, the blessing of that child will bring healing to her and maybe even multiplied blessings to others. What about the unborn with physical deformities or mental disabilities? Well, as we've already said, And already seen, human personhood is not based on any physical trait or mental capability. In John 9, we read of the man born blind and the disciples are are wondering who sinned. Was it him or his parents? That this particular man should be born with such a disability. What does Jesus do? He responds by saying that God had allowed this one to be born so that God's glory could be demonstrated in and through the man. He says no one sinned. In other words, God was using the man's physical disability for his own purposes. We may not always understand those purposes, but we should not bring an end to those purposes either. It is an absolute travesty. know how prenatal testing is being used to selectively abort children with markers of physical and mental abnormalities. Even in cases of serious deformities and disabilities, the unborn is still a human person deserving value and dignity. The Lord loves them, and the Lord honors the added responsibilities that families of these precious boys and girls face. And again, As the church, we need to be there for those with love and support, for those families with special needs children. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the group we have here that meets downstairs and does this. I'm grateful for their their intense focus and committed ministry. We need more. This community needs more. In these very rare instances, well, what what about instances where the life of the mother is in jeopardy? In these very, very rare instances, like a, a tubal or ectopic pregnancy, it would seem to me personally that Scripture with its general principle of esteeming life allows for the ending of the pregnancy in order that the life of the mother would be saved. Now, I freely admit that there are other believers who love the scriptures and who love Christ just as much as I do, would disagree. But in this instance, the motivation for taking this action is the saving of life, not the destruction of it. Therefore, I wouldn't even consider that an abortion, but the very sad consequence of life-saving medical intervention. Because we live in a fallen world, we are faced with at times with with heart-wrenching situations that are terrible. And so we're called to do the best we can. And as I said, there are other believers who love the Lord and the Scriptures who would also disagree with me. But that's okay. It is an area. This is one of those areas where we, with our individual conscience... Must be informed by the word, and we have to walk by faith and trust that God is working. Lastly, doesn't a woman have a right to do with her own body what she wants? Simply put, no. No. Neither men nor women have the right to do whatever they want with their own bodies. And plainly, Scripture and science are both very clear that the unborn child is not part of the woman's body. It has its own unique bodily structure, has its own unique DNA, and yes, it has its own individual soul that distinguishes it from the mother. And even if you don't believe that, it's perfectly normal for the law to tell you what you can and can't do with your body. It's the law that you have to buckle your seatbelt when you are driving. It's the law that you can't ingest certain substances into your body. Thankfully, it's illegal for you to walk around without clothing your body. Like many of our laws are about what we can and can't do with our body. So, no. The unborn child isn't part of the woman's body and no person has the right to do anything with his or her body. So in light of this, what are some steps that we as a church can take to remain effective in our culture? Number one, I think we need to first promote the blessedness of children. The Bible nowhere describes children as interruptions or financial burdens. Psalm 127 says, Behold, listen, children are a heritage or an inherited gift from the Lord. Today the dignity of children and the raising of children is under assault in our culture, but God always speaks of children as precious blessings to be cherished, protected, guided, and welcomed. Parenting is hard work, but it's also good work. It's one of the clearest frontline ministries believers have that we would get to raise boys and girls to know and love Jesus. And so as we talk about our children, as we as a faith family, as we're going about our week talking about children, maybe even our children, we need to make sure that we're not diminishing the wondrous gifts of God that He has given to us. In much the same way that we demean marriage at times by talking about the ball and chain, We don't need to talk about our children as burdens, their blessings. And I say that to myself. In the exhaustion of parenting, you can drift into that. We've got to guard ourselves against that. Number two, we need to promote the goodness of adoption and foster care. In the same way Joseph raised Jesus as his very own son, so we the church need to be about the business of promoting and supporting and taking part in adoption and foster care. This is an issue central to the gospel because through the gospel, every single one of us in Christ is adopted into the family of God. It's a tragedy to see the financial and bureaucratic barriers that families face who want to foster and adopt children. So when our brothers and sisters in Christ want to pursue that type of ministry, we ought to do all that we can to offer financial, emotional, and strategic support. It's why I'm grateful for organizations and ministries like the Alabama Baptist Children's Home that, that we support as a faith family through the cooperative program. It's a great ministry. And I'm grateful for the, ministry, the, the ministries that families across this room, across this campus, That they're taking this this ministry of adoption and foster care that they're doing. I'm grateful for your example and your blessing. And then number three, we must continue to promote the truth and grace of God. Liberty is blessed with women who are leading efforts to apply the gospel to those impacted by abortion. Our Healing Hearts ministry that falls under the umbrella of our larger biblical counseling ministry... They are doing tremendous work here at Liberty and in our community. But you and I can be part of this too as we live out our faith. Our faith family has to be a place where women and men can struggle openly with what they've done in the past or what they're struggling with now. No doctor's office and no clinic has the resource and the true hope that the church of the Lord Jesus has. We have to be faithful to show it and embody it. One of our values is rescue, not neglect. Well, here's plenty of people all around us in our community who need to know that there is a God who rescues the downtrodden and the brokenhearted. He loves to shower His grace upon women who regret their abortion. He loves to share strength with the woman who has until now maybe believed that abortion was her only way out. He loves to heal and restore families and couples and doctors and nurses who have been involved with or impacted by abortion. Listen, if any of those are you this morning, then hear me clearly. Jesus sees you and he knows all about you and he loves you. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, even the sin of abortion. And if you trust in Him by faith, He promises you a new life that isn't weighed down by shame and guilt. He promises power to keep going. Grace to walk with joy. Brothers and sisters, as long as this world is still marred by sin, we will need to be messengers of this great grace. Abortion is a terrible and an evil reality in this world. God hates it and we should too. It is an assault against the Lord. It's an assault against his image bearers and against his purposes. But Jesus is greater than abortion. And by his strength and his love and his word, we can see actual lives saved and hurting lives transformed. So let us treasure the unborn and stand for them. Knowing that children, all children deserve the right to live because God has intended them to live. And let us pray and work for the day and time when abortion is no no more. May that day come quickly.